Professor Hakim Adi is a historian specialising in the history of Africa and the African diaspora. He's published widely on the subject, including most recently for adults, Pan-Africanism, a history published by Bloomsbury in 2018. Today, we're going to be talking about the reissue of a highly important book, The History of African and Caribbean Communities in Britain. There is no other book for children that I'm aware of that provides a comprehensive historical overview of this subject. And while there are increasing numbers of books about black figures, such as Mary Seacole and Walter Tull, and whereas there are some themes that are covered, such as slavery, the slave trade and apartheid, these are mostly disaggregated from a wider historical context, both British and world history. This must be of interest to those of us working in education of young people. We should pause to reflect on the impact that this has on children who encounter these partial histories. What sense do they make of them? To help us explore further, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Addy in the reading corner. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Before moving on to the content of your important book, I wanted to start with the biggest question of all, I think, and that is, what is history for? Oh, what a wonderful (laughs) question. One thing that it's about is understanding the world in which we live. So we, we don't just look at the past because it's sort of fascinating. We are looking at it to understand it and to understand, if you like, how it contributed to the present. So I sometimes say to my students that history is the study of change and the role that human beings play in that change. And in that sense, we are all the agents of history. So that's extremely important. And it's one of the reasons why history is such a controversial subject and that the powers that be, they often have a definite view of what kind of history younger people should be presented with or young people should understand and so on. So I think that's very, very important. Um, and history can, can therefore, our understanding of history can inspire us to, to change the world and to think that we are capable of changing it. The second thing about history is that it gives us a sense of our own identity, we could say. So what does it mean to be British? What what is that conception? And, of course, if history is presented as only relating to, for example, the white men of property, then for most of us it gives us a very strange sense of our own identity, our own place in the world. You know, we would probably kind of have the idea that what we represent as as women or as black people or as whatever Mm. um, is is unimportant and so on. So presenting a history which is not the history of white men and property but the history of everybody is extremely important, I think, to give us that that kind of identity, that sense of, self-worth and self-importance and so on of course it's not the only thing but I think it makes a big contribution and when young people grow up as I did never seeing anybody represented in history who looks anything like me or them that that is problematic and I think 
one of the problems we have today uh, with the subject of history is that so many young people, particularly of African and Caribbean heritage, turn off history or are, are turned off history because it's such a kind of there's such a Eurocentric presentation of that subject. Um, so it's important to combat that, but it's also important to combat any erroneous ideas about history for everybody. That history is about all of us. We've all contributed in various ways. But these are very, very important things. Mm. Can I ask you um, about the title, The History of African and Caribbean Communities in Britain, mm-hmm. rather than, say, The History of Black Communities in Britain, which could have been another potential title? Now, I know this must have been carefully chosen. So tell me a little bit about that. It's uh, diff- kind of difficult subject in a, in a way because you know black in the british context is can be a rather ambiguous term for one S- secondly it's not a term that everybody's happy with it's a bit like the word colored it's kind of describing people through color rather than from on the basis of you know geography or any conception of nationality and so on so saying african means people who kind of come or trace their heritage directly from the continent saying caribbean so hopefully it's they are inclusive terms and they are as as kind of accurate as one can be without creating any any confusion and so on so that that's really why we've used those terms yeah I ask the question, I hope you understand, not to be provocative, but because I think terminology is so important and and trying to seek to get the right terminology, it can be hard, can't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm working on a, a similar book for adults and the same issue will come up there, that what do we call it? And I think probably it will be African and Caribbean again, but we'll see. I'm still thinking about it. Um. There's so much to pick up. We won't have time to go into every historical period. So perhaps to pick up some key themes, I think there's sometimes a real misunderstanding that world travel is a relatively modern accomplishment. But from the Roman Empire all the way up to the Middle Ages, people were travelling around this world. And it was consequently more of a melting pot than uh, perhaps we give credence to. What do we know about Africans living in Britain during that period? We don't know as much as we should. And we tend to focus on the Roman period, where obviously we have some information, but again, not nearly enough. Or the, the, the essentially the Tudor and Stuart of the 16th century, where more and more evidence is being presented to us. And obviously in, the, in, the, in that period, 16th century, we know that there were in the hundreds of Africans in the country doing a variety of occupations and so on. In the period before that, we know much less. And I think probably because no one's really dug very far. There's some very interesting findings from the kind of Anglo-Saxon period you know, skeletal remains of people who were clearly African. And they're people like Bishop Hadrian, who came in the 7th century, was obviously a very, very very important figure in the Anglo-Saxon world, important in the sense that he contributed to the development of the church, development of education system, brought with him 
some of the learning of, of North Africa. He's thought to have been Libyan and a Berber in origin. So we know something because Bede was translated as saying a man of African race. What we do know, of course, is that there were Africans in Europe during this period, particularly in Spain and Portugal. Those who have gone down in history as to be known as the Moors, some of whom were North African and most likely um, f- further south than North Africa as well. But their contribution was was significant. And, and probably most of those Africans who were in Britain in the in England in the 16th century probably came from the Iberian Peninsula themselves. So that is a very, very important period. Mm. The 4th century to the 15th century, that needs a lot more a lot more work. I mean, there's a, I think it's 13th century. There is a mention of, a, of an African, an enslaved person, actually, who had escaped. And the king puts out a warrant for his uh, apprehension. So that's, I don't know the end of that story. I only know that, that part of it. But that's quite interesting. Who was this African who was enslaved? How did he escape? Who helped him escape? What happened to him and so on? <laughs> Not because he appears to be somebody of servile status, but just because he was here at a very interesting period. Was he brought back from the Crusades or whatever? So these are just things that we need more people to be looking into. Mm-hmm. And in fact, for most of this history, whether in the Roman period, in the Tudor period, or even in the more recent period, we need much more research we need our young people to be engaged in this research and even at school level Mm. there are possibilities for people to do little bits and pieces of work Mm. uh, interviewing parents grandparents neighbors so there's so many things so many interesting things that need to be recorded so much more work to be done yeah absolutely around local and starting with local history because there's bound to be something there I mean I like you i probably don't want to dwell on slavery simply because um, in some respects that's been the bit that's picked out and plonked into the curriculum without any context around it but I do think there's something important that's happening now I mean I interviewed Alex Wheatle a couple of weeks ago about his new book uh, Cane Warriors which is about the uprising on Mm -hmm. Jamaica sometimes called Tacky's Rebellion Mm -hmm. And what's important here is this sense of agency mm-hmm. coming through now that wasn't there and certainly isn't often there in the way that I see the slave trade being taught in school. So yeah. do you think that this is an important shift that's going on? Well, if it is a shift, it's it's an important one <laughs> <laughs> because um, it's very important. I mean, I was going to approach it more from the point of view of the abolitionist movement, if you like, if we can think of that as being a more sort of British-focused process. But yes, as you say, it's important to have the whole period in context and to understand it, the use of human trafficking during that period as a as the basis for Britain's prosperity and so on, industrial revolution and so on. So that's that's very key. But then in, in understanding the, the abolition of human trafficking, particularly by Britain, the world's leading human trafficker in the 18th century, 
how do we then explain the Abolition Act of 1807, seven years into the 19th century? So that has to be explained. And the, the explanation given by the powers that be, that it's all because of the humanitarianism of the mother of parliaments, is not convincing and not true. <laughs> That's why it's not, not convincing. I mean, from the British perspective, what's important is, I think, to mention the abolitionist campaign of the, the late 18th century perhaps the first and one of the biggest political movements in Britain's history that nobody ever refers to, which involved literally thousands of ordinary people, men, women, children, Africans and others, organising themselves, meetings all over the country, involving people refusing to take sugar in their tea and so on. So these are very important movements okay the government the government effectively banned it and one of the key things about that movement was the connection between those who were struggling for the rights of africans and those struggling for the rights of those in britain so like the london corresponding society and thomas hardy and so on so why is this history ignored i remember at the time of the the bicentennial, what was that, 13 years ago, going around the country and I'd meet various teachers and they'd say to me, oh, you know, it's so difficult teaching all this stuff and, you know, one feels so guilty. And I said, well, what is it you're presenting that you're feeling guilty about? Because if you go back to the 18th century, it's much more likely your ancestors mm-hmm. were engaged in the abolitionist movement. Yeah. So presenting this history of the 18th century and one could go on and talk about the 19th century and the, the campaigns in the, uh, the early 19th century which were also linked to the movement for the rights of people mm-hmm. for voting rights for suffrage for the rights of women and so on and so forth mm-hmm. so i think presenting history from that perspective inclusively actually looking at what took place that how everyone was involved men women workers, Africans, others, is so important. And, of course, then one has to bring into that whole abolitionist movement, again, massive movement, what was going on in the Caribbean, the uprisings and the connections between those uprisings and the abolitionist movement here, which is very, very close. Um, and kind of one inspired the other. There's a, like a almost like a dialectical relationship between them. So this is how history should be presented. And then, you know, we we kind of have an understanding of who was involved and what was involved and who was standing in the way of progress and all these things. So there's nothing wrong with looking at this question of slavery, but as you say, the, the, the context has to be there. And as you said as well, to look at the Industrial Revolution without also looking at those issues um, and how Impossible. how tied into social class, you know, the racial issues and the social class issues seem to me to be very closely connected. Always, just as we see today. The issue of racism, I mean, in, in Britain's history, again, if one looks at it, one sees it very, very closely connected with you know, the powers that be. Racism is almost like an ideology of the rich and powerful. It, it's their uh, ideologues, you could say, who, who present these theories of various kinds 
you know, going back to the, the 18th century and throughout the 19th century and so on. It's not the man and woman in the street who are presenting these things. Of course, these ideas are then filtered down in various ways and everybody gets infected to a certain degree with them. But the source of them very clearly comes from the colonialists and imperialists and so on. And if you go into the 20th century, it's even more obvious because you have you know, a legal color bar which is upheld by... The, the governments, I mean, you know, it's all, and the governments are those who, who, are, who resist having any legislation against racism mm-hmm. um, or introduce laws, you know, colored alien seamen's order or the laws which govern, you know, who can join the army, who can join the navy, who can be promoted, the British uh, Shipping Assistance Act. All these things come from the great and the good, the powers that be. And if we come up to the present day and the Windrush scandal and so on, you see it very clearly. It couldn't be be any clearer where these problems come from. And then we look at Black Lives Matter and we see these the the two in in conflict. Just bringing us to the, the period of the First World War, again, something that's studied quite a lot in school, um, But what kinds of things do we remember from our study of the First World War in school? Britain and Germany, the Battle of the Somme, the blowing up of the Archduke Ferdinand in Sarajevo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the First World War is hugely connected to Africa, isn't it? Well, if you're not Michael Gove, yes, it is. Um, But if you're Michael Gove or Boris Johnson, then it's about defending Western civilization. It's about defending poor little Belgium and so on. Um, But for anyone who wants to really understand it, then it's much more a war between two gangs of robbers as to who can redivide the world in their interests. And from looking at it from an African perspective, you could say, that's exactly what it was about. And... Africa was divided before the war. And in fact, the scramble for the division of Africa, you could say, contributed to the war breaking out in the first place. And when it did break out, Africans were mobilized against their wishes and against their interests to fight in it. Those who stood up against that, like John Chilembwe, uh, were, were hunted down and executed. And then after the war, Africa was redivided and Germany's colonies were confiscated and divided between the victors, uh, Britain and France, and South Africa. So it's very, very clear, looking at that, what happened. And also, of course, after the war, again, there was talk of self-determination and all that kind of thing, uh, but not for Africa, and not for Asia, not for any colonial territories. So the war, what the war was about is very, very clear to allege that it was about you know safeguarding poor little belgium the king of whom and his regime had just slaughtered about 10 million africans you know it's complete it's complete nonsense so yes it's it's an important global phenomenon but it has to be presented accurately and i mean even in the british context going back to my book uh, the children's book, we kind of think about First World War in terms of, you know, Walter Daniel Toll and others. And Walter Daniel Toll is remembered for 
the main reason he's remembered is that he became an officer. And at that time, there was effectively a colour bar in the British Army and the, and the Navy, for that matter. And Walter Toll and one or two others were the first to break through that, Walter Toll being the first British-born black person to, to break through that barrier. And in fact, even in the Second World War, there was also a colour bar um, in the armed forces and even in the auxiliary forces like the land army and so on. So <laughs> if you know these things are presented accurately, then people have an understanding, young people have an understanding of what these events were about. But if they're not, then we just remember some archduke and so on. We, <laughs> we don't really get an understanding of why. As with everything, an all-round picture, an inclusive picture, is is very very important absolutely so just to uh, bring us up to date a little bit i was going to say that we, we've just had the um small axe films on have you mm. been watching those i watched the first one on mangrove nine i was going to ask you because uh while we're talking about the mangrove nine i suppose there's a link to your front cover with the notting hill carnival there is, although I'm not actually sure that that is Notting Hill Carnival. It is a carnival. I've got a feeling, it, actually, it's Leeds Carnival. Right, okay. So what <laughs> I wanted to pick up was the optimism of the front cover. That's a mm-hmm. very optimistic. Um, we've talked about problems all the way through our conversation. It's been about problems. Mm-hmm. But we are into educating young people. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that struck me, that you were talking about earlier was people who feel that they carry guilt. And I think one of the things that we don't want to do with young children Mm -hmm. is to inculcate a sense of guilt. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot here in what I'm saying. One is about, is there reason for optimism? And how do we avoid in teaching history that has such terrible moments in it? How do we avoid conveying a sense of guilt to young people well i think what the book does is it presents people and history as history is really as i say is about change about the study of change so we're looking at people who've contributed to that change and in contributing to change they've contributed to overcoming problems overcoming difficulties overcoming challenges so whether that's you know People like Equiano, let's say, who contributed to the struggle against human trafficking, enslavement, and so on. And even in his own life, overcame that challenge of being an enslaved person who freed himself, who then wrote about that in order to contribute to the wider abolitionist movement. Um, So I think, as I say, history, it shows us that we can also make changes that we we are agents of change and i think that should give us optimism it's when we don't think we're agents of change where we think oh what can we do it's terrible it's this it's that nothing i can do there's no alternative this is it forever well that's if anybody thought that then you would be pessimistic Um, but i think history shows us everything changes you know, we we don't live in the Stone Age. Why is that? Because we've undergone, society has undergone changes because of the activities of human beings. We don't live in the time of, you know, chattel slavery. Why? Because people have 
fought and struggled to change it. We don't live in a period where we no longer have, we have no political rights, okay, we we need more. <laughs> but again, because people like William Cuffey and others have contributed to that change. So I think that's how we have to look at history as people's struggle to, to change things, to improve the world, to make the world a better place. It doesn't necessarily move in a straight line. There are sometimes reverses and challenges and so on. But I think looking at history, there's cause to be optimistic. And the fact that we should know that our future is to some degree within our own hands, uh, we have our destiny in our own hands, I think should give us mm. optimism. You know, even this year, football matches, actually in other sports as well, are started with people taking a stand or taking a knee, whatever, against racism, mm. shows the capacity that we have for change. And that change has really come about because of what people have done this year. So, okay, it's not, it doesn't solve the problem, but it shows the capacity to, to impact on the problem, to, to, to act and to change and to, to move things forward. So I think that possibility should give us optimism for, for the future. So I want to end by saying a number of things. First of all, to all the teachers who listen to our podcast, they need to have a look and see if they've got the history of the African and Caribbean communities in Britain in their school libraries, because every school library definitely needs one. But I think also what we're going to take from this is, first of all, that history needs to be not compartmentalised. It needs to be looked at with all of its connections um, and it needs to be nuanced. And we need to have optimism that we can continue to bring about positive change by looking at the changes that have gone before. Um, and if we do that, we've got a lot to be hopeful about. So I'd like to thank you so much, uh, Professor Addy, for joining us today. It's been an education for me, and I'm going to continue reading your books and papers, which I've found extremely edifying and interesting. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs>